So Morgan started us off in the book of Ephesians a couple weeks ago and walked us through verses 1 and 2. If you remember, he kind of gave us a focal point of the map of where if Ephesus is, but he also went on to say that it's possible that most commentators believe that the letter was written as a general letter to the Gentile believers in Asia Minor, that it might not actually have been written to Ephesus, especially because we'll see in a moment the words in Ephesus uh, are left out. But just so you kind of have a, a visual of where the province of Asia is, and Asia Minor in particular in that region. He also walked us through a number of the issues in the background of the letter, authorship and those kinds of things. But I want to focus down on just a couple things. There's the opening and the introduction to the letter, which are just really the first two verses. Then Paul goes into what many believe is a very long Thanksgiving section. As Morgan pointed out, that the structure of Paul's letter has kind of fallen into this opening, introduction, or greeting. A Thanksgiving section, and then there's the body of the letter. Then there's the paranesis, which is kind of the ethical teaching, and then there's the conclusion. But in this letter, a lot of people note that there may not be a body. And that points to the fact that it might be written to a general group of people because he's not addressing specific issues in a specific church. I'll be honest, other people disagree and say, no, there is a body, it starts at somewhere, but you know what? That's not really the point, but we do want to focus on, I think that it's right to say, there's this extended Thanksgiving section. Morgan also gave us a little bit just to review the purpose of this letter to the Ephesians. For example, we see the strong themes about the unity of the church or the use of the church as God's plan to save the world. There's this very key thing that we're going to start with tonight. This identity, this, this, this kind of repeated identity of us being in him or in Christ. Something that is repeated often by Paul that we may skip over. So tonight we're going to actually focus on it a little bit more. And then... Another purpose that he pointed out was that it was meeting the needs of the Gentile Christians to give them kind of knowledge, but to actually encourage love. And I, the reason those two words really kind of stuck out to me when Morgan was presenting them is that's the reason I wanted to go through the book of Ephesians. Because there seems to be something that I felt when I was reading it recently that this group needs to kind of go through this book. Because there is some aspect of the book of Ephesians, especially in the first few chapters, where there's some basic knowledge that he's trying to impart and reinforce that's beautifully stated. But when we get to the Paranesis, there's this part about living it out and the love that comes out of it and the way that we're supposed to live with one another as the church that I feel sometimes there's always this tension in this group because we spend so much time in knowledge. And there's this part I feel like we will bring out of it about how we're supposed to also live and the love that flows out of that. So that's where I'm hoping we end up. But I think it's good to start, obviously, and go through it and build so we read the whole letter in context. This is the verses that Morgan covered last week, Ephesians 1, verses 1 and 2, and it's just the beginning. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus... And that's where he pointed out that the words in Ephesus are not found in the earliest originals. The faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Morgan reminded us that this word grace was actually a play on the standard Roman word for greeting. He had changed it because they're so close in the language to grace, giving kind of a Roman greeting, something that the Gentiles would have recognized and also adding the word peace, something that the Hebrew Christians would have immediately recognized, and he unites them, grace and peace. He intentionally combines them to remind constantly, even in his greeting, that he is looking for unity in the church, and as you know, in much of Paul's writings, he's always dealing with this division and the theology that goes behind what does it mean to be a Jewish Christian or a Gentile Christian, or is it just a Christian? So he begins just in his words with grace and peace, uniting a greeting to both as one church. What I'd like to do tonight is I want to read first just the section we're going to be covering. So the section that we're reading through is verses 3 to 14 of chapter 1. And this is a doxology. A doxology is basically a statement of praise 
a, a series of praises to God. And he begins his thanksgiving with a long doxology. Paul's letters either have a doxology or a thanksgiving. The only exception is Galatians where he gets right to the point because he's got a lot to say. But it's unusual to find both a doxology and a thanksgiving, especially as long as the one that's in Ephesians. So we're going to spend a little bit of time in the doxology that he begins with. And I want you to look at these emphases. What, rather than just walking through it, I want you to clue in to these emphases that he's going to make in this recitation of praise that is packed with his beliefs and his theology that is imparting to the churches in Asia Minor. You're going to see this repeated use of the word in Christ. In fact, the word in Christ or in him or the equivalence of it appear about 164 times in Paul's letters. About a quarter of them appear in Ephesians. It's very high in his in his order of ways to express what it means to be a follower of Christ. So he'll repeatedly use in Christ. We're going to look at this, the way that he emphasizes election, salvation, and also the triunity of God, all within these 11 verses. So he's really packed a lot in one place with the beginning. So let's do this. If you look at the sheet of paper that I passed out to you, it's the actual verses that you'll also see right here on the screen. And here's what I'd like you to do. I'm going to read verses 3 to 14. What I'd like you to do is I'd like you to just spend time reflecting as I'm reading them on the places that you see him either noting in Christ, the emphasis on being in Christ or in him. Maybe you could circle the places where you see him talking about election, being called by God. And the places where you notice that he's talking about the triunity of God are the places where the triune God is mentioned in different ways. So you can just take whatever freedom you feel like and sketch these out on this sheet of paper while I read this. And then we're going to go through the verses in more detail. Starting in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to put everything into effect when the time reaches their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purposes of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Take a moment if you want to just reflect on that and see if you can finish up circling some of the things that jump out at you and we'll discuss them. All right. In just these 12 verses, in the Greek text, the words in Christ or in him appear 11 times. In our English translation, there is nine of them. And I put them up on the screen for us to kind of track how often this concept is there. It's easy to trip over some of them as we go through the verse, but others of them just to focus on what he's saying. Every spiritual blessing comes in Christ. In verse 3. His choosing of us in him. 
in verse 4, comes before the creation of the world. In verse 6, his glorious grace given to us in the one he loves, which is another in Christ. Starting in verse 7, in him we have redemption. And ending verse 9, which he purposed in Christ. In verse 11, in him we are also chosen. In verse 12, describing that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ. Verse 13, you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth. And in that same verse, when you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit. For Paul, this notion of being in Christ is very important. So I want to just kind of highlight it even more while we're still looking at this from kind of a top-level view. So often we've grown up hearing the opposite. It's become common parlance in our churches to talk about Christ being in us. And that's not incorrect. There are some references in Scripture, but they're few, that talk about Christ being in us. Maybe the way you've heard it is something as simple as, do you have Christ in your heart? That's an expression of Christ being in you. And it really is very me-focused. It's very individual-focused, as if the sum of Christ is going to somehow come to dwell in us. But like I said, it, there is some justification for it, but the overwhelming reference is exactly the opposite of us being in Christ, of us coming to be part of Him, of joining Him, of becoming one with Him. And the us is a collective us. Again, we have to get away from the thinking of it always being like just me and Jesus. Because the body, as Paul will make clear over and over, is the us collective. Those who are called, those who are chosen, those who are the body of Christ, we are all together in Christ. And those two things, we have to kind of break the mold. Because we're so used to thinking first of just accepting Christ and somehow like tucking him into our heart. And the second one is forgetting that this is a collective call for all of us together. We're not doing this on our own. All right, let's walk through the verses a little bit, see how he does that. Starting in verse 3 again. And maybe I'll stop and make this point right here. Reading a doxology is very hard to get interactive about. Because what a doxology sounds like, if you want to pattern it against something, is it's kind of like the Psalms. It's somebody who's giving high praise to God and reciting beautiful truths about God, and it is about God. These things are the reasons we praise God. In fact, some people say that this whole section, if you read it in the Greek, and I didn't, of course, is one long sentence. It's like one sentence that's just strung together with clause after clause. It doesn't end. If Jill was editing it, she'd go nuts. That somebody could write such a long sentence that spans almost seven verses. You know, just like without stopping. But it's an urgent and beautiful recitation of all the things that God has done. But it does raise implications that some of you should probably question. Let's look at it. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Notice right away, for those of you who are marking things about his use of the different persons of God, he's already mentioned the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, blessing us in the heavenly realms. That does not just mean in heaven and the heaven to come, it means that we're aware of a spiritual reality around us, that this physical world is not all there is, but that God and all his activity is taking place both in this world, but also in the heavens above and all the spiritual realms around us. And these spiritual blessings are given to us in Christ. They come in Christ. They don't come on their own or separate from him. They come in Christ that all the things that come to us as blessings from God come 
in Christ, because of Christ, through Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. Let's just stop there. Look at those words carefully. Because we don't often look at these words enough. God chose us to be in him, to be in Christ before the creation of the world. There's a lot of times when we want to get away from this notion of God choosing us. Maybe we are more comfortable with the idea of us choosing God. We're more comfortable with the language of us somehow helping people to decide that they want to respond to God. And that may be okay, but this text is clearly saying that before the creation of the world, He, being God, chose us. And I think if we look at that for a moment, that's got to raise some issues. Question? I would say the immediate question it raises is what is us? Is us the church? Is us a collective humanity or a selective group of people who are creating an us and as a result of them? Yeah, that's a very good question about the us, right? Is he talking about a single person? Is he talking about a group of people? And most people would say that who he's choosing is the us who are in Christ. So if you say that the people who are in Christ are the sum of believers or the church, it is a collective group, but still the membership in that group is because you are in Christ. Your identity is in Christ. Yes? A couple of things. I think the, the predestined is a really bad interpretation in the NIV because I, that has like a theological idea behind it. I think it's much more general, like... To be destined is different than to be predestined, and I think that changes the context here. And also, I would disagree, I think that this is much more expensive, especially in light of the verses that follow about bringing all things in heaven and earth in unity within Christ. And the question that asks is, well, if all things in heaven and earth are brought into unity in Christ, then what does that make all things on heaven and earth? What, what do they become? So there's like this concept here of like things being done and brought together, which I think actually makes it much more expensive than just he's talking about like this group of people. Okay. Philip? I have two things to respond to that. Like first, the word predestined, I mean, even NAS uses that as well, which most people would say NAS is more correct on the word. And also the sentence before it, if you compare destined to predestined, that would just be destined before. And the sentence before it says, for he chose us in him before. So there's an idea that it is destined before. So predestined seems like an appropriate word for it. I know it has theological ideas attached to it, but primarily those are just that it's destined previous, like before something. And it says before the creation of the world, like he chose us in him. It, I think those are good points for this reason. It would probably be off the point to focus only on that word because of the verse before it. And there's another verse that will come in the later verse that actually says the same thing. But we still have to understand what that means. I've got the amplified version. Okay. Um, and mine actually, instead of saying, you know, predestined, it says foreordained. Um, let's see here. I'm starting in verse 4. Even as in his love he chose us, actually picked us out for himself as his own. In Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, consecrated, and set apart for him, and blameless in the sight, even above reproach, before him in love. For he foreordained us, destined us, planned in love for us, to be adopted and revealed as his own children through Jesus Christ, in accordance with the purpose of his will, because it pleased him and it was his kind intent. Okay. How many people are kind of troubled by the idea that God chose us? Anyone troubled by that? A couple people? For the people who are not troubled, let's hear from you first, that God would from the beginning, and forget the word predestined, let's just go back to the previous phrase. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. So call it what you will, 
He's saying before you were created, whether God's bound by time or not in your understanding, before our creation, he had already chose us. Who's not troubled by that and why? It goes along with the thing with book of John, talking about like, unless the Father draws you or shows himself, you don't come to faith. And so I guess I, I'm still with Jeremy, though. I still have a very inclusive view of what that means because in my view... Uh, what I believe is that God, uh, I also take Second Timothy very seriously where, where it talks about God wanting everyone to come to know him. And so I think God has revealed himself to all people. We couldn't possibly even know or love God without God being someone who reveals himself to us. And so in that sense, First John also reminds us that he loves us before we loved him. So for me, it's not very hard to think of the concept of God, one, creating all things, and, and loving all things and doing that out of his grace and love before we were ever a us or a person. <laughs> you know what I mean? For me, that's not, actually not a hard concept, only because we, we couldn't even know God without him loving us and showing himself to us. So that's why I don't have a problem with that, actually. Okay. Anyone else want to contribute why they're okay with it? I'm going to try to verbalize this as best I can because it's, kind of, it's kind of a concept more than like something that's completely outlined in my mind, but... It's com it's almost comforting to me, this idea of God um, choosing me before the beginning of time because it fits in with my idea of him being a loving God seeking after his people and not a deistic kind of removed deity. Like, he's been involved with seeking after our hearts before the world even began. So because it's true to, to my concept of how I understand how God works, I find this idea comforting. I'm, this is not to say that I'm comfortable with the exclusivity of a certain group of people apart from the rest of the whole world that's damned to hell. Like that, I, I'm not okay with. But the other part of it, I'm, I'm comforted by. Yes? I was just going to kind of echo um, Morgan's and say that, I mean, I think the activity of God revealing himself to us is contingent on God like first participating in us by greatness. But that includes everything. So it's not about a small group of people who God first chose to love. I mean, I, I think this is a much bigger picture. This, this, is, this is God participating in and loving in all of everything that was created. Everything. Heaven and earth and everything that was created. And that would have to happen first. Like, we can't exist apart from that love. So I think it, because it happens prior to creation, it's like the, kind of this beautiful thing that you are, or that we are all eventually, in the fullness of time, brought up into this thing. Okay. Now keep in mind, this is a doxology. I keep coming back to that because this is Paul, even though he's writing a letter, he's expressing facts about God and it's directed to God. And the point here of this praise towards God is God's activity. So he's just describing God's activity. The reason that's somewhat significant for us is because it's, it's tempting for us to start pulling out all sort of, well, what does that mean and what does that mean? Paul just assumes this to be true without pausing for an explanation of what it might infer or mean. That's something to keep in mind when reading through something like a doxology or like the Psalms. When someone's just praising God for things that are true about God, when we might say, well, is that true in every case? Or what does that mean? And that's not the point of Paul's presentation here. But it's the point of this group. <laughs> for us to go, well, wait a minute. So now I want to hear from some of those people who are troubled by the implication of God calling those whom he chose, for he chosen us in him before the creation of the world. Who's that trouble? Why does it trouble you? It troubles me because if God creates everybody, then why would he essentially only choose, you know, not choose everybody in the same process? Okay. Why are there some left out? Yeah. If he chooses some to be part of the body of Christ, he's also choosing the other people who aren't chosen to be condemned. And I'd have some trouble with that, yeah. It doesn't say that, but you're saying that's the implication. Sure. Okay. Yeah. I think in terms of our role, too, this kind of gives me a little bit of pause because I think, well, okay, if God has predestined this, then our job is to 
spread the gospel? Is there a time when we're working up the wrong tree? We shouldn't be bothered with this person because they are not predestined, and so we should go over here. Or what part of our actions come into play with how this has been predestined? Like it, it's just a little bit of a yeah. Uh, just to play devil's advocate a little bit, I feel like maybe the focus is too much on the predestined part and not enough on the holy and blameless in this sight part of it. And maybe that's where the emphasis of the verse is meant to lie. I mean, not to not to discount the importance of considering predestination, but maybe that's not the point that Paul's trying to convey in this doxological sense. Very good point, except the difficulty is in Paul's presentation that we're going to see to be holy and blameless can only be done in Christ. And so that if you're called or chosen by him to be in Christ, you can't really get to being holy and blameless unless you go through Christ. So you've got this obstacle, if you will, that if you're not chosen, you're not going to go through Christ, you're not going to be holy and blameless. That is the point, though, of what he's trying to push towards. That he wants to see us be those things. And he'll be giving us a therefore, since you're in Christ, then you should be those things. That's also can be drawn out. But it still leaves us with that kind of, you've got to be in Christ to get to that level of holy and blameless. Anyone else troubled? I would say to, to Jill's point, you know, what about our role? I would say we're called, um, going back to that, we're called to love. So the result doesn't really matter on our end. You know, we're called to do what we need to do. Whatever the result is, is going to be what the result is. Well, there, I think there's an element of futility that could be present in there. Yeah. Well, here's where I get to punt. We're not doing a whole talk on predestination. And Paul is not either. The reason that I want us to peer really carefully into these verses is because he is stating them as fact in a praise towards God. It's true he's not pausing to give us teaching on the subject, but he's reciting it as if this is known. So if you take Paul's word to be inspired here and saying, these are words that God is meaning to speak, even as Paul is reflecting praise back to God, then I think what you have to wrestle with here is, we often have an opinion about, well, I don't like that, or I don't know if that's really true, or I'm not sure what my theological position is. Paul is just assuming it's here. However, so I can back off that a little bit, even some of the concerns that you raised are addressed by people who are very comfortable saying that God chose us from the beginning, but that does not negate our response. All right? Very few people, to Surly's point, about, well, that means that he chose the people that he's going to condemn or damn. I would say a very small minority, even among Calvinists, take what's known as the hyper-Calvinist opinion or a double predestination opinion that says not only did he choose the people to save, but he also chose people to damn. Very, very, very few people take that position. But I'm not here to resolve all the tension. I'm just saying Paul certainly just throws it right in there and keeps going, and most of us are kind of left mouths open going, wait a minute, I don't like the concept. How do you just assume that it's something that God should be praised for? Yes. And one thing just to throw in there is something that I think we as American Christians have problems with um, is, is thinking that we don't get to play a big enough part. And what's, what's a definite theme throughout the scriptures is that God's activity is much greater than ours. And so we do need to wrap our heads and minds around that because to think otherwise I think is actually really foolish. Um, to not think of a God who is doing way, way, way more work than us. <laughs> um, it's very silly to reverse that. I think we actually do that pretty often. So these verses, and certainly Paul it's good that you mentioned it's a doxology because Paul is focusing upon God's activity, which is a theme throughout the scripture. I mean, read Genesis, and it's God doing this and choosing this person and doing this and that and the other. You know I mean? And then people do respond, and there is a part for people. But certainly, the activity <laughs> is in the hands of God far more often than it's in our hands, and we fool ourselves to flip that. The praise here is to God. It's a doxology, and it's praising God for what he is doing, and it's all about God's activity. You're dead on about that. Um, I think that's very important to keep in mind because there is that bias of us wanting to be active and doing everything on our own uh, or having some meaning to what we're doing, not understanding that God could be, like you said, so active or so much the cause of even these blessings and even this choosing. That kind of tweaks us because we want more to somehow be in our hands. We also struggle with a fairness issue when you said like our American attitudes. We kind of have this fairness issue of like, well, everybody should have a chance. 
By the way, this is not saying that they don't have one. Let's be clear. He's not actually saying that. We're just reading that into it because that's kind of the, the fear we have of God choosing people is that he might have chosen not to choose people. That's what we're worried about. But if you want to take up the American notion of fairness and ditch it for a moment, you've got to remember that Paul is writing from a very Jewish perspective who is very comfortable with God choosing a nation like Israel and working with them throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. So the people that he's writing to, okay, they're Gentile Christians, but this is coming from somebody who's very well versed in the theology of calling and of choosing and of having a chosen people and who's also very aware that Jesus becomes the elect of God. So we're kind of like moving from one kind of chosen to another and here he's talking about another. I have a small like, frustration more than anything else because I feel like even you said like this, Paul's expressing truths about God, um, but we read this and I'd say the majority of Christians, the majority of people in here don't think this is true. Um, I understand it's a difficult topic. I don't understand and have solutions or answers to it either. Um, but I think it's just more frustrating to me, more so the aspect that we say, yeah, it's right here in the scripture. But we're okay with believing the opposite of it. And now let's keep going. Or we look at it and we say, this seems right, but we're going to believe something else. Most people reject this unless it suits them. Um, because, like, well, it all fits in the mystery of we don't understand how it works together, so I'll pick and choose when I want it to work. And that's why I feel most evangelicals fall under. Most evangelicals don't look at it all. They just start winning whatever series their pastor is in that week, and they don't try to resolve with how it worked with the one that was before. That's actually the honest truth is we're not picking and choosing, we're just selectively going through each one by itself. And nobody's actually systematically putting them together in a way that you could say that's done. So, for example, in looking at the issue of, like, does God decide who is elect from before time? In the treatments of systematic theology that I looked at, they lay it out in that way where you can look at it and go, yes, I could see that you could make this make sense. It's going to, it takes... 50 or 60 pages, but I could see that you have a basis for how you resolve it. No one in any church pew is ever going to get that. Because you would have to read that and you'd have to understand all the backgrounds behind it, and I barely scratched the surface of it. Okay? But I think that's the more accurate way of saying is that we just never actually try to assemble a systematic view of God's sovereignty and free will and election. You know, it's out there. People have written about it for long periods of time, and some of them are beautifully written. But we, as the lay people, don't get it because it would blow our minds. You know? And it would cause more problems than just saying to somebody, just invite Jesus into your heart, and that's what it means to respond to God. That's easier. It's a formula. And, it's, and, and frankly, sometimes I think that's not so bad because some of the people in our churches, most of them, if you tried to take it to what people really thought, it would probably just cause more problems than it was worth. It's just a sad state of this way it is. Jason. We were talking a little bit about how um, in, in that time, when it wasn't as individualistic, you're thinking of people being saved collectively or people being chosen collectively. Um, and looking at Israel, we see that there are a lot of people who choose to live into that call and a lot of people who don't. The remnant are the ones who he has this, um, this future that he's drawing them towards and there are some who reject that future and they aren't saved. And there are some who live into that future regardless of, um, of what's going on around them. They still have hope that, um, that what he's promised them they're going to live into and somehow, somehow come to. Um, and so that same idea here, like there are people who are going to live into this calling and that group of people is the us. Um, and those of us who choose to live faithfully into that, he's going to form in us holy and blameless lives. And those of us who don't, um, it's not mentioned here. But I, th I think that it's that idea of like, this is a collective group. It's not, it's not describing um, bounds other than we're the ones who are being faithful in Christ. And so being the ones in Christ, he also chose us in Christ towards this holy and blameless life and towards this adoption, towards the redemption and those things. Yeah, sure. Yeah, actually, I like what Jason said because I think 
like the issue here is it's not an issue of like free will and predestination. That's that's not what Paul is discussing here. And I, I think we read into that and what Jason I, I think what Jason maybe unintentionally is highlighting is that the real issue is who belongs in the category of that having been chosen. That's what we probably don't agree on. Like for some people it's an issue of well God is choosing this one group to hell and this group to heaven, right? And that's that's the issue. And then all these other theolo theological abstractions come from that. But that's not what this text is talking about. This text is talking about the way God creates in God's sovereignty or the way God acts in God's sovereignty. Then the deeper issue is who is a part of this like chosenness. And Paul is not talking, he can't possibly be speaking for every like, what, who, individually, yeah, who's he really talking about? I mean, because obviously there's 2,000 years of church history after Paul. But, but Paul doesn't talk about the 2,000 years. He's talking about. He chose us in him. Okay. Yes. I think Jeremy's point, and that can be addressed um, in verse 13 when the tense changes from us to you. Because it goes from being an us, which I feel like may be addressing the early church and those who were first sent out to send God's glory. Because it says, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So it says other people are welcomed into this communion with Christ when they've heard the message. And so maybe it's not exclusive to just... Paul's group of people, like he's meaning to say that it will be, this, this communion with Christ will be extended out to other people. Yes, that's true. I mean, what you're saying is he's describing the method, or he's describing how they too came to be in Christ. But that's still leaving us hanging with the issue of the choosing before, but at least it's answering the question of like, who are we talking about? God chose people from before time to be in Christ. I'll tell you that most people resolve it this way. They say, that's just because God knew. Or, some people would say, because God always knows, because he's not bound by the before and the after. He's just there in every place. Because he's not bound by time like we are. So that his choosing before, before the creation of the world is either Paul trying to highlight that God's act of creation and even in our temporal understanding of it, God's plan and God was at work from the beginning and it wasn't like he looked and got surprised by the whole sin and rebellion issue. It was always his plan to love, to create, to save, even before the creation in our temporal understanding. But I'm one who believes that God is not temporally bound. So when we're saying God knew in advance, God just knows. He just always knows because he's an always existence. So I'm not troubled by him using this language of God for knowledge, for choosing, for pre, you know, for ordaining, predestining, because it from my perspective, God just knows that all the time. And a lot of people will just say that's where I find my comfort in this. That God's action has been going on, that's the main point of the doxology. God is a saving God, that's the main point. God is the one who's acting, not us, that's the main point. We're not even the focus of these verses, like we being people. God is the focus, and God does most of everything that needs to be done. Whether our response is needed or not is a different debate that's not even in these verses. Okay? Well, I was worried we wouldn't be interactive tonight. In love, he predestined us for adoption. That's a very important concept to Paul, adoption. We are going to be adopted. But it's again, it's through Jesus Christ. This adoption to sonship, he uses a formal like Roman term of having all the rights of a formal heir. So the inheritance is ours. And it's in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, a big theme of Paul's, which has been freely given to us in the one he loves. There it is again, in Christ. Everything is accomplished there. In him we have redemption through his blood. He's describing how we are his and how we belong to him. It's redemption. That's another word that we skip over sometimes because we think that's just another synonym for salvation or a synonym for some other God-acted word. Redemption literally means that he purchased us. Like the way you redeem someone who's been sold into slavery. Someone who's bond, you can repurchase. So in him, in Christ, we have been redeemed. 
Exactly how? Through His blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, He made known to us the mysteries of His will. Our word mystery means something we can't figure out. You've heard me even use that tonight, that word mystery. The Greek understanding of mystery was a revelation from God. Something that is not known that is now revealed. So when we see these words like, He made known to us the mystery, it's being expressly stated that the mystery is being revealed. The mystery of His will is being revealed. And it's according to His good pleasure. He purposes it in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. What is that will that He's revealing to us? It's what Jeremy was bringing about earlier. To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. That's His ultimate purpose. Yes. Well, I think the mystery also is, it deals back with the choosing and selection, which is the fact that the Gentiles are mysteriously invited into Israel. And that's a huge concept because that's in Romans and it's in a couple other places where Paul identifies, I think, in Colossians as well. Like the mystery is the fact that God has <laughs> somehow expands Israel to allow for the Gentiles as well. Yeah, he is saying here in plain English, like, we've all wanted to know what is God doing? What is God all about? And he's saying, God has revealed what he's going to do. God has revealed what he is doing. God has revealed what's going to happen. And that is, bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Now the reason I kind of disagree a little bit with Jeremy's point about that might imply, and I'm not even sure I understood it right, so maybe I'm misquoting, but that would somehow imply that if everything's going to be brought under Christ, then maybe this idea of election doesn't really relate to being in Christ, or we don't really get the full concept of what he's talking about, that would be very strange and would contradict all of Scripture to say that because everything is unified in Christ, that means that everything is somehow saved in Christ. That's where I think we would probably disagree. All right? There's no doubt that he's got this plan. We've cited this verse a number of times. If you look at Colossians 1, 15 to 20, the whole idea of God's plan, Paul has already summarized in a previous type of doxology or hymn. I mean, he says that everything is supposed to be brought under Christ. In the middle of this verse, says, he is before all things, and again, in him all things hold together. We're clearly waiting for the fulfillment of the kingdom in its fullness to arrive. That hasn't happened yet. It's begun, but it hasn't been completely fulfilled. And that's the place when everything is going to finally reach its fulfillment. But the reason that I think that all these things brought under unity in heaven and earth are under Christ, I think it mostly has to refer to us. Because everything else is already subjected to Christ. I mean, he is the author of the universe. He's everything. He's in the thing that all things hold in creation begins with him. I mean, he existed before. He didn't just show up at that one point in time. So what's left to not be subject to him? That's just a question. I don't even know that I have the direct answer. I mean, if the whole universe holds together because of him, then the only thing left really in my mind that hasn't yet come under him yet in its fullness the way it's supposed to is probably us. That's why he keeps talking to us being in him. But, but again, I, I don't necessarily see a problem with like, the philosophical point that you're making. But think of what that means to say that before time even began, that God created all things within this kind of divine life, right? There's, how then can we sit back and say, well, this is something about you know, someone being chosen to go to hell or heaven or not? You know, that's where I feel like we end up going. That's where I feel like that you end up going. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm willing to step back and say, wait a minute, what if this really means that in the fullness of God's time, all things somehow are brought about to be within Christ? And what if that means something more than just like our, our idea that you've got to like say some magic words and boom, you're elect? Okay, let me just stop the discussion right here. You're arguing with somebody who's not in the room. Right? You're arguing with like some sort of evangelical boogeyman that's not here. Right? <laughs> I'm not talking about saying magic words. I'm not talking about hell. What I'm saying is that this is not a universalist declaration. 
but I'm not saying what else it means because I don't know. It's not in this text. In this text, everything is being brought under Christ. Christ is the head and everything is being unified in him. Where that leaves us is just saying that is God's purpose, that everything be brought under him. But I'm not the one who has already, I haven't said anything about that we have to say certain words. In fact, I've said the opposite. Because to just say words and say bring Christ into your heart is not even what he's pointing to. He's saying your whole being and who you are will be subsumed into who Christ is. But he's also said that you were chosen to have that happen. In him we were also chosen, here we go again, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purposes of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. So who is the people he's talking about? Those who put their hope in Christ. He's defining them. And you also were included in Christ. How? When? When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So we might disagree with Paul's theology, but Paul is making it pretty clear that this is how you were chosen. This is how you were predestined. Like, how do I know if I'm in that group? How do we know? Because he says, when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of salvation, when you believed, he makes it clear, when you believed, you were marked with a seal. Then how were you marked? I'm not saying that we can deal with all the implications because we can't. Like, not tonight, not in this series. You guys want us to go into a different series. I'm just reading Paul's doxology in Ephesians. And he doesn't back off these things as if they're true. If you listen to what Paul is saying, you can wrestle against it, but he's saying, you were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. That's the point when what we are chosen to be has happened. That's his description, not mine. I think one of the reasons this can be tricky is because we have a very linear view of time, and if you do believe that God is outside of time and has seen things that are going to happen and, and knows these things, then this makes a little more sense. But if we're doing a cause and effect linear time thing, then it does something that's a little bit more Yeah, I think the cause and effect causes us trouble. I've been doing this long enough with our group to know when we've like struck the rock on the way, you know, and when the boat is leaking and like we're, we're like just sinking in this. So here's what I'd like to do to close this and then we sound like we still have some work to do. Can I make the hopefully non-controversial point about the Holy Spirit? I was just talking about being marked with a seal. Paul ends this part with a very interesting perspective on the Holy Spirit. He says that the promised Holy Spirit, and he's probably referencing promises of the Spirit being poured out from prophecies in Joel chapter 2 and elsewhere in Ezekiel. But he's saying that you were marked with a seal. And who's the seal? It's not a what, it's a who. The promised Holy Spirit. Who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Remember that adoption language that we had earlier. Adopted into sonship, adopted into formal status, being heirs of the master. The promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. We are God's people. He possesses us. He's redeemed us with his blood, Paul is saying. And the Holy Spirit is the deposit, the guarantee. We get two things there. We get a guarantee, a seal that's not going to be broken, that we are heirs. And the Holy Spirit and all the spiritual blessings that come from the Spirit and His power is the deposit, the down payment on our future inheritance, on what is coming. So that part I at least want to make clear because I think we can see clearly he's saying, that when we believe, you get marked with this seal, this down payment, this deposit, this guarantee of your future inheritance, and that you will be redeemed or have been redeemed already. And that is the power of the Spirit that we have. I think that, at least, hopefully we, we, we can see that's what he's saying pretty clearly.
Any last comments? Yeah. I just have a question about that. Um, I mean, it seems like the, the purpose is to be a kind of a guarantee of acceleration. Um, and sometimes it seems like it's really hard to tell if we have the Holy Spirit or not. What is that supposed to look like? And what do we do with that? In this instance, it's not, for example, meant to be a visible spirit-like gift or some sort of like second baptism of the Holy Spirit. So that's not the part that he's talking about. But what this means, though, is whether we can tell or not. So to kind of tweak the question a little bit, it's not a question of how do we tell that we have the spirit. This is actually saying you do. Now, how we practically deal with that and understanding the difference between the spiritual gifts and just the power of the spirit and living as the church in the power of the spirit in the world it's a different issue. But it's not a question of like, how do I know or if there. He's saying it's there. Like when you believe, you are marked. There isn't like a condition of now that you're a believer, you should expect the Holy Spirit to show up at some point or you should pray to receive the Spirit. And I know that's taught in our churches. And some churches actually say like, you know, if you believe, then there'll be like some second baptism. Or, and he's, that's not even in his thinking at all here. We don't really find that in Paul's thinking. He's saying... You believed, you were marked, you're sealed, you have the Holy Spirit. How the Spirit manifests himself in our lives is the subject to something different. Okay. Last comments? Wow, frustration everywhere. <laughs> um, let me just say this one thing about this, and then we'll close. When I stood at the beginning that I thought it would be good to go through Ephesians because there's the first part of the book that really struck me about knowledge, and the second part of the book that struck me about how we live in light of that knowledge and love, uh, this is exactly what I was talking about. I actually didn't think we'd hit it, though, until chapter 2, uh, when he gets even more explicit. So the fact that we're in the opening verses of what normally most people skim through, because it's just Paul just saying his usual fluffy beginnings to stuff, uh, I'm glad it means we at least paid attention enough to get troubled by it. So what I'm going to do with your permission is to come back next week and actually focus a little bit on the places where we still have trouble because I don't feel like we should just leave this and move on. I think Philip's corrective is probably a good one that we just kind of like say, ah, and move on. But I don't believe that should happen. And I don't believe that I'm encouraging that to happen. Um, you should be troubled by this and you should resolve it. Maybe we won't, but you should at least still be troubled by it and not just read this as another Thanksgiving from Paul. Okay? Well, let's leave it right there. Let's just pause it there and finish up in worship tonight. And, uh, Let's try something honest right now. Lord, I'm thankful even for the spirit of wrestling that goes on in this room. It's frustrating as it is right now to feel unresolved. I know the temptation sometimes is to just not want to deal with it. Or the temptation on the opposite side, Lord, is to think that we've got it figured out. But Lord, your word is described as a sword and a very sharp one. So Lord, help us tonight uh, just... Break us down a little bit. Trouble us this week. Let your spirit teach us what we cannot with words express. Peer deep into our hearts and the places that we resist. And Lord, use this group in its wrestling. Let us honestly wrestle with your word and may we come out better for it. Lord, we need you for that. I feel like my words are not adequate. Pray this in your name. Amen.